qualified obedience is disobedience. Only complete and immediate obedience is, in fact, obedience. Okay, so Jesus is there. We've got as far as that, at least. Okay. Um, do, they, do I need to give him a knee jerk yet? Oh, you're all right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, now, let's take a look at what actually takes place in verse 13. Coming back to it now, the second half. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. <laughs> really, their, their compassion is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Here's Jesus bleeding and, and battered and weary and exhausted, and his best friends died. Uh, who cares about that? The multitudes got their needs. They want another Pentecostal fix. Okay. And verse 14, and when Jesus went out and he saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Friends, in a state of acute personal grief and exhaustion and weariness, what made the difference? What pushed him over the line to his miracle? Something called compassion. And I want you to write this down because really this has been the target of tonight's meeting. Here is the block in the wall that it was all about tonight. It's the word compassion. A compassion that was so strong that it was able to even overcome the degree of his exhaustion, his weariness, his hunger, his personal grief and trauma and anguish of spirit, all of which was very considerable, but this thing called compassion was so strong that it was able to overcome all of that and motivate him to go to extra yard and minister to these thousands of people. I want you to know something. Compassion is a remarkable thing. And I will say this before I close, but I'm going to say it again and again. If you want, if you're praying for the miraculous, pray for compassion. And, and compassion and, and sentiment are not the same thing. Compassion is not feeling sorry for somebody. It is not being willing to discuss their needs with others. The one thing that compassion has that sets it apart from all of these other instincts and emotions is, listen to me, compassion always motivates to action. Not just action, but selfless action. Compassion motivates action that demands a laying down of one's own desires and even one's own rights at times. Jesus had rights. But how many know that sometimes for the God thing to happen, you have to put aside your rights? If you've married more than three months, you know that. <laughs> Margaret and I's first eight years, seven years of marriage was the closest thing to purgatory anybody wants to get to. <laughs> People who have read our books on marriage and our marriage seminars and things over the years, and we've spoken a lot on it, said, oh, wow, wow, wow. And I say, oh, wow, where do you think we got the material? <laughs> it's a four-letter word. 
P-A-I-N. Pain. Lots of pain. All right. Uh, um, and if you want your rights, that can be a crippling thing. And we used to say in our marriage seminars, what do you want to be? Right or reconciled? Because sometimes you're going to make a choice. You sometimes you have to surrender your rights, no matter how legitimate they are, in order to do the God thing. Can you say amen? It's not, it's not, it's not hard to lay down your rights when you know they're wrong. <laughs> but when your rights are right, when they're just and good and justifiable, that's when it's difficult. Was Jesus right to have rest and food and replenishment a justifiable thing? You better believe it. But something about this compassion motivated him beyond the point of his rights. I had a friendship with him, another minister, for years, and, and there was a breach between us. And um, I felt there was a real injustice involved in it and some of the accusations that had taken place. And I was pining for my friend, and God says, well, there's one easy way to handle this. You take responsibility for the breach. And I said, but, but, but Lord, you know the facts. You know them. Yes, well, what's it got to do with the reconciliation? I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I've been accused of every conceivable thing. So I rang him up, and I said, can you forgive me for having provoked you to the point where you have said those things? I take full responsibility for the breach between us, and I apologize. We're great friends today. Good. What do you want more, most? What do you want most? To be right? Okay. Compassion goes beyond being right. Okay. Um, now, sometimes ministry objectives, sometimes our own desires, sometimes our own purposes have to be put aside for the need of those that we're serving in that given moment. And the hunger of those people became a greater priority to Jesus than his own personal grief and exhaustion. Compassion for people will do that to you. Now, turn to Luke chapter 10 if you would, and we're going to keep on this thought of compassion. Because if I do nothing, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to sound too provocative, but I, I'm not really too fussed if you, what you think about me by the end of tonight, as long as when you go home tonight, your sleep is thoroughly disturbed by, by one word, compassion. I mean, I want you to go to sleep thinking about it. I want you to wake up in the moment, in the morning, with your eyes twitching, compassion, 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 uh, um, because I want the Holy Ghost to drive it into your spirit, because I am utterly convinced, totally convinced, that this twin thought of compassion and the miraculous is something very vital for the future of this church. Uh, and, and God is not saying it's one or the other. He's saying without that one, you ain't going to have the other. Okay. 
Now, this very well-known parable of Good Samaritan, Luke 10, um, verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him, then departed from him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Were they sorry for him? Probably. Probably. They probably went home and told people about what a tragedy it was to see a man lying by the side of the road in that condition. Just like tens of thousands of Christians do right now. And they pass people in the street. And we see new on the news about young people and the tragedy of our streets. Something like that. And a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Friends, it's a provocative question, but what is your compassion level like? What is your compassion level like? When was it last provoked? Friends, we're talking about a supernatural people living a supernatural life representing a supernatural Christ. The whole thing is about representing the Christ. What does the world need to see? They need to see the Christ and Him accurately reflected. So, we are talking about a Christ who my Bible says is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. Now, he's touched with the feelings of my infirmities and he's the Christ I'm called to represent. What does that then tell you? It tells me, tells me that I have got to be a person that is touched by the feelings of others' infirmities. Not just touched by, tut, 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 this is a tragic thing, this is a bad thing, oh, this is a terrible thing. No, but a compassion that will motivate me out of my self-indulgent little world and into a life of selflessly serving in order to meet the needs of these ones that God is motivating me towards. He had compassion. Verse 34, so he went to him. The compassion compelled him into action and he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. Action took place. He poured on the oil and the wine. Significant because oil and wine he had carried with him for very good reason and purpose. It was for the journey. He needed it. It was a personal cost to him. Okay? When you're on a journey you do not take excess baggage. They didn't have cars, okay? And so anything he had with him, he had with him because he desperately needed it. And so there's personal sacrifice going on here. And then he set him on his animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Friends, that took time. That took a lot of time. He wasn't driving a Ferrari, he had a donkey, okay? It took time to do this. Now, what we have to understand, I hope you get a hold of this, is that where he was, he was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Nobody in their right mind traveled 
the road from Jerusalem to Jericho on their own. Why? Because everybody knew about the thieves and the robbers and the bandits on the road that had beaten up this dude in the first place. Okay? And so to be on that road, you had to have a purpose. You didn't go for a Sunday stroll. They went from Jerusalem to Jericho. I kept it going at a fair clip and they had to have a real good reason to be on there or they wouldn't have been on there in the first place. So what does that tell you? It tells you the man had an agenda. The man had a purpose. The man had a goal. He had to get to Jerusalem. That's the only reason he was on the road. Jericho, rather. Now, why is that important? It's very important, friends, because when he saw the man and he realized what he had to do, it meant he had to go put down the gurgler all of his own agenda. The very reason he was on the road in the first place. It must have been pretty important for, to, to put him on that road to Jericho. And now he had to put aside his entire agenda, all the reasons for him being there, and just flash it down the toilet. Heck, what does it matter? The man has a need. Time. Compassion is spelled T-I-M-E. Time. Time. It's going to cost you time. And it cost him personal sacrifice. It cost him time. And the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I come, I will repay you. Here's a considerable amount of money. And who's he doing it for? He's not doing it for his best mate. He's doing it for a perfect stranger. A perfect stranger. Now, friends, I'll tell you something else. Compassion is a great purifier of motives. This man's a total stranger. He probably would never see this man again in his entire life. This man would never be able to repay him. This man would never be able to give him a good deed. This man was a total stranger, and so he takes his time. He sacrifices his schedule. He puts personal cost aside, and he then gives his money into the situation with the stranger, knowing that he'll never benefit from it one iota. You see, compassion is like that. Compassion does not expect anything in return. The tragedy is that a lot of people serve and sacrifice passionately because they know ultimately the one that they are serving or the environment in which they are serving will ultimately recognize them for their serving and promotion will come as a result of their serving. Now, it's very subtle, but it's there. But this man had no way he could benefit from this. Very good. See, see compassion, compassion doesn't expect a return. And the reason why you have disgruntled, disillusioned, resentful, bitter people in local churches is, and I have heard it often enough over the last 40 years, is I can remember one uh, notable man in this country who probably could have made the greater mark than any that I had recalled before his day. Knew him well. And people often ask me, because they knew I knew him so well, they said, well, when did he turn the corner? I mean, I mean, he was awesome. And how come he ended up like that? When did, he ch when did it all happen? And I remember the moment. I remember the moment. 
I was ministering in Manurewa, I had our own church, and I thought, well, I'll go and visit this guy, and he was having a big eldership meeting, in which he was going to put out some stuff he wanted to do. And the, the elders unitedly said no. And he came out of the meeting, and he was storming hot. I mean, you could see the flames coming. And he said to me in the car park, he said, David, you would think after all these years they owed me something. And God said, he's just crossed the line. You see, our service is not motivated by what people will owe us, by what people can do for us. And what, you know, you serve in this department or that department because the recognition will come or, or some, I've got a thing called and I have time to get into it tonight. Uh, um, it's part of a Leaders of Destiny series. I do a pastors and leaders and it's called the Judas Spirit and the, and the expressions of it. And whereas a couple of them are very, very obvious, you know, everybody's nodding their head furiously, then I get down to the subtle ones and if we start to look at me, you know, you see the color drain out of their faces because there's hidden buttons all over the hall. Uh, uh, because it can be a very, very subtle thing. Love of recognition. Need to be accepted. You know, things like that. Compassion knows no boundaries. Compassion has no qualifications to it. It simply motivates into selfless action. Now, in verse 37, and I really must give you a five minute knee jerk. Jesus said, uh, and, and the person said back to Jesus, he who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said to him, you now go and do likewise. Jesus did not say, now go and think likewise. Think, uh, uh, you know, create a good theology around this. I want your philosophy to be like this. No, he said, go and do it. Do likewise. Do likewise. And friends, if you're writing anything down, write it down. Miracles belong to those who get involved. Miracles do not belong to the passive, they belong to the active. I've got a message I sometimes preach called the curse of passivity. Too many people on the sidelines. Too many people watching the misery of others but not doing anything about it. Too many people enjoying church in four walls rather than being the church in the gutter and the streets and where people are hurting. Compassion demands we do something about that. Okay. You've been sitting a fair while, haven't you? If you want to stand and stretch your legs a bit. This is very different to this morning. I've ministered to quite, quite a good number of people this morning individually, prophetically, but, but I feel like I've got to hammer this one home. Is that all right? Can we do that? Can we just stay with this? Just stretch you. I won't keep you that much longer because um, I know I want you out tomorrow night, don't I? Um, okay. And I've got to stay the distance too. So, um, let's just get some circulation going and then we'll continue to track here for a few more minutes. Okay. Okay, we're on track again. You see, one of the uh, 
One of the most tragic casualties of our rat race 21st century living is a loss of compassion. Yeah. A, a lack of willingness to be involved when personal sacrifice is required. Selfless actions, actions that deny one's personal rights. Friends, I've been saying it all night, but I'm still saying it. You want miracles? Ask God for compassion. And don't make it nebulous. God, give me compassion for people that I can do something about. God, burden me with individuals that I can actually do something about. Don't pray prayers like, God, give me compassion for the Biafrans in Africa. <laughs> Pray prayers like, God, give me compassion for somebody, somebody I, you know I can do something about. And where do you start? You start exactly where you are. You start tomorrow morning. You start next week. You do not wait for some cataclysmic sort of declaration in the heavens with neon lights. You start by opening your eyeballs and saying, God, love people through me. God love people through me. You know, you cannot separate the compassion of Jesus from the miraculous of Jesus. You cannot do it. Before the miracles of Jesus, read the scriptures before the miracles of Jesus and you find he was moved with compassion. And before he ever raised Lazarus from the dead, he wept for him. We need less high-flying, Pentecostal, hootenanny, gift out of coming out of our ears individuals who can zap, zap, zap. We need a lot less of them and we need a lot more people who will weep for the people that they're ministering to. Because otherwise we're going to have explosions of gifts and expressions of the miraculous on instantaneous events and stuff like that and it's all going to be a wonderful tea party and we'll still be having the same party a year from now and ten years from now and nothing is going to change our world. The church is going to have a happy clappy picnic <laughs> while God grinds his teeth in frustration at a church that is far more interested in self-indulgent little playthings than it is winning the loss for his son Christ. Yeah. Now I'm going to get off the subject, but on it. This has nothing to do with what I was talking about, but please hear me. Ooh, this is a heavy one coming up. How many believe in the river of God? Yep. Well, something you're not sure you want to answer that. Because I do. Yes. And Ezekiel says, and you listen carefully, Ezekiel says that the river of God flowing out from under the threshold of the temple of God, talking very, very clearly, I think most Bible theologians agree, talking about a flow of the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit into the, uh, in these end days flowing out of the presence of God the, the river of God the Holy Spirit of God 
Now you listen carefully to me. It says that it brings life and healing wherever it goes. You're tracking with me now? And it also says that it brings in a multitude of fish. So you have healings and miracles and evangelism taking place. Why? Because the river is flowing there. Okay? Now, in the midst of all of that and all of the stuff that I've heard preached on the river and being in the river of God, they missed out the most important part of the entire chapter. And that is that the river only gains its healing properties when it touches the sea. Until it reaches the sea, it doesn't have the healing properties. It said its own waters are healed when it touches the sea. And the sea is a sea of humanity. Its healingness comes out of flowing to its objective. Now, listen to me, because there's a little verse in there that's a scary one. In the middle of all of this blessing and healing and miracles and trees growing and gorgeous stuff, it's incredible, fantastic. In the middle of all of that, it says this, but its swamps and its marshes will never be healed they will be turned over to salt. Salt, Lot's wife, judgment of God, what's a marsh, what's a swamp. Last time I checked, it was a disease-ridden place full of mosquitoes and yuckies. <laughs> so here's not the devil, but the river of God, the river of God causing swamps and marshes and disease and death and destruction and judgment. The exact same river that calls healing and blessing and life and evangelism. And I've lived long enough to see it. Church after church after church after church. And why? What is the difference? Oh, you see, water, the river, flows into the sea, but it flows into a marsh and doesn't flow out of the marsh. I remember when I first was saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And, and, I was so hungry for God. So hungry for God. I was out to every single meeting I could get out to. I mean, every meeting. Oh, God. You know, I was so hungry. But about a year later, and I'm just going to every meeting that twitches. But a year later, I'm sitting, 18 months later, whatever it was, sitting one night, in the place where I was renting a room, boarding, as a 19-year-old, absolutely distraught, even contemplating suicide, because of the alarming contradictions in my own personal life and morals and things of that nature. And I got down and I wept before God and I said, God, I don't understand. I can't go to any more meetings. I, 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 nobody could be more hungry. Nobody could be more thirsty. I said, God, why am I in this state? And God showed me something I had never been able to forget. 
He showed me as vivid as anything this beautiful pounding great river coming over the edge of a ravine and blasting its way down into the bottom of the ravine and carving out this pool and this pool down the bottom as a river hit it it got rid of all the rubbish and the debris and this beautiful pool of water and I knew he was saying that's what I did in your life when I got saved you and filled your Holy Ghost that's what I did in your life and then he took me away and he brought me back now in the mind it was only a few seconds but I knew that it was the 18 month gap that we had been talking about and now the pool was all green and yucky and yerky. You wouldn't want to swim in it, let alone drink from it. And, and the river that was flowing into it was a mere trickle. And I said, God, that's exactly how I am. And I said, but Lord, why? Why? What is the answer? And as soon as I said, what is the answer? I can still see today. And this is all like maybe 40 years later. I saw this fist come out of heaven and just go like this right into the side of this pool and blasted this thumping great hole in it and the water in the pool just gushed out the side of it and plummeted down the side of the hill and as it poured out of the pool down the side of the hill the river that was flowing suddenly picked up again in volume and it plunged in and now the water was pouring into the pool, swirling around in the pool and flowing out at the same rate as it was flowing in and within minutes the pool was crystal clear again and sparkling with life and transparent and God said my spirit is a river, not a lagoon and I've never forgotten it but listen carefully to me because I don't know whose corns I'm treading if I am treading and, and I'm subject to your leadership but some, I, never meant, I never meant to say anything like this tonight it's not in the notes but let me tell you something friends I have seen the tragedy of church after church after church after church undergo a genuine visitation of the Holy Spirit and people coming under the power of God and doing carpet time and all sorts of things happening like that and I've seen it happen and it's been wonderful and it's been glorious and it has never ended up doing what God Almighty sent it to do they have clustered around it and enjoyed it and then they put on special meetings for it and then they enjoy it some more and then they come back and they enjoy it some more and eventually it turns into a swamp and a marsh and you go back to that church and we and I can and this is not very fairy I can name them to you and, and, and even one was a close friend of mine and I tried to warn him and he wouldn't listen and I tell you what that church went from 700 people down to 250 people why? it become a swamp now you listen carefully to what I'm about to say the visitation of God and this is miraculous is never meant to flow into the church it's meant to flow through the church it's not for your benefit it's to empower you to reach the objective which is bleeding, dying desperate people that he wants to reveal the Christ to and the Pentecostal world around the western world has turned what 
God meant to be an empowerment for service into a self-indulgent splash me club. And God's heart's grieved. And what happens? God withdraws. They wander around for a few years and then God visits again to see if they've learnt the lesson yet or not. And what we have got to do, friends, listen to me, is have a hunger for God, a hunger for the miraculous, a hunger for the visitation of the Holy Ghost. But when he turns up and when he touches your life or when he fills you or when he overflows or he visits a service, immediately say, who's it for, Lord? To whom do I challenge, channel this? Yeah. Who am I supposed to touch with this overflow of your love and your compassion and your goodness and your grace? And as long as it's flowing through you, it will bring life and healing and blessing wherever it goes. Yeah. Including you. Yeah. Including you. And I've got to work towards a close here. I, I just got to one more story. Can you stand one more story? Yeah. Because this is our first-hand one too. Have you ever heard of Ernest Comnapelli? Okay, you will one day. And and I had an awesome privilege of being invited over there. And and I heard the story firsthand and saw the situations went to the places. And and, and Ernest Comnapelli was born in India, Indian, born in India and went over to do his education in the United States and became a doctor and was very, very successful. And God challenged him to go back to India and that God would give him revival and visitation in India if he were to lay all of that down. I mean, the, the wealth, the family, the, 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 the cars, the house, everything, just lay it all down and go back to this little crummy town in the middle of India and if he would do it, God would honor him. He arrived there, said, yes, Lord. And he had, uh, took over this little church of about 30 people and he preached and he preached and he preached and he preached and he believed and he believed and he believed and he, believed, and he prayed and he fasted. He did everything in the book to get a visitation of God and nothing changed. After 12 months of this, he says, God, I gave up everything and I can't get one person saved. And God says, but do you want them? Well, yes, of course I want them, Lord. That's the reason I'm here. Oh, that's good. I'll bring them then. Next Sunday, three lepers turned up with open sores and, and just pulse all over them. They were indescribably bad. All right? They walk into the church and, and the good people made sure they had some seats for them where at the back with at least two rows between them and anybody else. He preaches, they get saved. So they come up the front and Jesus said, now embrace them. And he says, but, 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 you know, they're all in open state. And Jesus said, I embraced you when you looked like that. Now you embrace them. So he embraced them, much to the horror of his people. Okay? Only trouble with that is that they were there and they got 20 of their mates. <laughs> the next service is 23 lepers in the place and there's 30 good Christian people standing outside the building. 
literally outside the building and they wouldn't come in the building. Okay, so he preaches and they all give their hearts to the Lord. And then the Lord says, now water baptize them. Now I'm not trying to shock you and get too gross here. I know one little one's come in, but, but I've got to tell you what it is. He got in this pool thing, they got this thing, and he started baptizing them. And pieces of skin and flesh and all sorts of stuff just started to fall off in the water until the water is swimming with this stuff. And after about number eight or nine, it's getting yerky. And the Lord just says, you will baptize all of them. So he did. And he baptized all of them. By this time he's covered in it. And then the Lord says, now you'll get out of the pool and you'll have communion with them with one common cup. He said, but God, he says, one cup. I drank the cup for you, now you drink the cup for them. And one cup, and he passed it around all 20 odd of them. By the time it came to him, it was indescribable what was in that cup. And Jesus said, you drink it. And he drank it. And God gave him revival. And 14, 15 years, 16 years later, I was over there after that event and he had 920 churches and had a move across India like you couldn't believe. I had been invited over to speak to their regional superintendents. My goodness, there was about a hundred of them and they were all apostles in their own right. And it was an awesome time. And I spent days just ministering to them and I heard the story. And I knew that there was a moment in time when God tested the heart of a man. God will test your heart. It's not it's not hard to love the lovable. But what releases the compassion of God will ultimately release the miraculous of God. And I have this deep, deep feeling tonight prophetically. Now I haven't moved like I did this morning, but I know what God burdened me to say tonight because I know that he's priming some of you up tonight. This is not a good study on the subject compassion. I believe Holy Ghost is trying to say something to you. If you can come to the place of unconditional availability where you would embrace whatever your version of that leper is, God's going to do some miraculous things. Some extraordinary things are going to be done to very ordinary people because they have the component that God is looking for. Compassion. Compassion. Now tomorrow night we are going to talk about this unbelievable miracle some more in this open meeting. It's just going to be an extension. It's just going to be an extension of this meeting. And we're going to talk about the miracle. And they'll hear all about the miracle. But I, I want you to know what tonight as a leadership why the miracle took place. The miracle took place because Jesus, in the midst of grief and exhaustion and, and weariness and wanting to be on his own and having planned to be on his own, suddenly was faced with a need and his compassion became greater than his need. And it motivated them. And the miracle we hear about tomorrow night happened because the heart of Jesus was moved with compassion. You want the miraculous? 
plead God for his, for his compassion. Ask God to give you eyes to see. And start with the first one you see. Don't reason it out. Don't wait for blasting great trumpets. If you know somebody, or you, look, what, what, what's a meal to a destitute person? What's love and compassion to an outcast? There's not too many of us living today that doesn't see somebody sometime, somewhere. And put it this way, if you don't, that's fine. God can orchestrate it. God will, see, God knows whether you're going to respond or not. I've had people say to me, well, God never let me see anybody like that. Well, of course not. He doesn't waste his time. He brings them to those he knows will respond. When he sees you come to a place inside of yourself, my God, I want to live my life selflessly for the sake of others. I want to be the vessel of your love and healing and grace and love and compassion to people. When that has triggered the inside of you, the Holy Spirit knows. And he says, right, he's ready for his first one. She's ready for the first one. I'll bring so-and-so. I'll bring that one. And you're on your way to a miracle. Okay, God bless you. And... Um, Tomorrow night we'll extend this, we'll, we'll get into the miracle factor itself, and then on Sunday night, um, I know that some of you, I don't know what you do here, what your church culture is, but can I strongly suggest that uh, no matter what you have to do, that you do make it out tomorrow night, because this is preparation for tomorrow night, that you make it out tomorrow night, and you make it out Sunday night, because I'm going to preach on Sunday night about faith for the miraculous but it's going to be maybe different to what you expect okay but I am absolutely convinced God wants us to live supernatural lives and, 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 and what I've gone through the last seven years in my physical body and I won't get into I told them this morning about that written off completely written off by the doctors and, and I have to live supernaturally otherwise I'm going to go bye byes okay but God sustains me every single day by his grace and when I asked the Lord about it one time he said I, I'm doing in your body what I want to see in my body I want my people broken free of the shackles of their humanity as I said to this morning one of the things that I react to these days is when people say David you're only human <laughs> I'm not I am not I am not only human I have supernatural life inside of me and so do you God bless you Amen I'm to uh, go back over uh, those who've taken on it and uh, I know I've got a lot of people tonight, fresh and clear, trust you have too and uh,